G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to Footyology with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 7 of the Footyology podcast. And yes, you thought we might not be here because there was actually no footy over the weekend, but there's never any shortage of footy to talk about when Finey and I are around. How are you, Finey? Uh, well, had some great news on the weekend. What was that? Well, the, ra- the rankings or the ratings came out. Yes. And from the World Authority... Frosty glass mug yes. on the world's number one dad. How was that? I was placed next to my bed when I woke up and it said it right on the frosty ah, mug. Well, you do, you've done better than me. I haven't actually got my present yet. I'm told it's still coming via Amazon. So I know it's something of an audio-visual nature. But uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there and uh, a football-free weekend. But like I said, we've still got heaps to talk about. We're going to do a review of all the clubs officially in mothballs for 2017. And we're going to pull no punches in our review of the positives and uh, probably fair to say a few more negatives about those sides, not in September action. So let's not mess around anymore. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, that's a wrap. Rightio, we're going to work our way from the bottom of the ladder up. Um, We're going to be punchy with these because obviously we've got 10 to get through. Let's start at the bottom Wooden Spooner, Brisbane in 2017. I would have thought, finally, one of the better Wooden Spooners we've seen in recent years. Oh, look, there's plenty to like about Brisbane. I'm not as bullish about them as maybe others are. This is quite a long rebuild for Brisbane. And, of course, a lot of people have pointed out that they've got midfield strength, which they do, but just to watch on Dane Beams going forward, his injury concerns seem to be deep-set. Um, Lewis Taylor had a really good year, but it's about the development of their key position players. And you know what? Shaki didn't come on at all. And no, he didn't. Even though he re-signed, maybe traded. Eric Hipwood is spectacular, but he averaged 8.15 possessions per game, and he needs to build on that. That's actually less than in his first year. All right, I've got a few uh, more positives. I, I am a bit more bullish about him. I thought Alex Witherden was a great find. He looks uh, like he's going to be a, a key player for years. Hugh McLuggage, understated debut, but I thought pretty effective. Jared Berry showed some really good signs. Ben Keys, I like the look of him. There's more where that came from. Uh, what have they got to fix up? They're pretty, uh, They well, let's be honest, they leak like a sieve defensively, considered the most points in the league this year. Uh, last for contested ball, so they've got to harden up, but you'd expect that with a very young list. Um, pluses, I, I thought hats off to Tom Rockcliffe. I, I thought, you know, given he lost the captaincy, he could have sooked it up, but he didn't. I thought he had a really good year. And Dane Zorko, good enough uh, to be All-Australian. I don't know how many times he wouldn't spoon or would have had an All-Australian representative, but I don't reckon it would have been too many in recent times. So, no, probably not. Um, what did they win? How many games? Five? Four? Yep. Yeah, five. It's, it's a pretty reasonable effort by the Lions, I reckon. Chris Fagan, he's a good teaching coach. They know it's a long-term project, so... You know, I, I reckon if I was them, I'd be pretty pleased with the year's output. Yeah, maybe with the year's output, but the future... Look, they are going, uh, apparently, to lose one of their most important players, Stefan Martin, looking to move back to Melbourne. The word is that Mason Cox will be offered a multi-year deal. That's There's an element of risk in that. Martin, a proven leading ruckman. Mason Cox, yet to be proved. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, that's enough on the lines. Let's move up to, uh, or sorry, further, hang on, south. Gold Coast, South Brisbane, isn't it? My geography deserted me there for a minute. We're moving down both physically and, I reckon, in <laughs> Metaphorically? Terms of, yeah, yeah, yeah. In if terms of the season. If we were having uh, the old credibility ladder, I think this mob would be definitely last. Um, the Suns, what a rabble. Lost their last seven games, lost nine out of their last ten. Soft. No resilience, physical or psychological. Sack their coach. Uh, replacement 
Dean Solomon, I think probably perhaps a bit unfairly, but he's probably put himself out of the running with how they performed at the end of the year. Looks like their best player and some would argue their only player's going to go. Um, what's left? Well, I had a look at the key stats for them. Individually, Ablett was second in the league for disposals, ninth for contested possession, ninth for uncontested possession, second for clearances. The only other player in the top 50,000 in the league rankings was uh, Jared Lyons. It was actually a pretty reasonable pickup from Adelaide, and he was, I think, 16th for contested ball. But they're just spiritless, aren't they, really? Well, they're two best players in terms of spirit and consistent output, both called Jared, both new recruits to the club. So the stain and whatever the Gold Coast does to a footballer psyche hadn't seeped in for Jared Lyons or Jared Witts. And I thought they were their two standout performers. I guess on the upside, they do welcome back Sam uh, Day next year. Now, look, he was a big loss. He did his hip in the JLT series. He's the second tall forward, and he is a good, hard-at-it big man. So maybe the forward line which boasts Lynch, Day, and Peter Wright could be around something they build. Very quickly, uh, where do they go coach-wise, do you think? Oh, they just go into the pool of the best credentialed, long-serving assistant, list-managing type. But Don't worry about profile. Well, I think they've lost the profile race. Yeah. Buckley's re-signed to Collingwood. Scott at North Melbourne, where do they go? Oh, well, I guess they could have a crack at Ruzy, couldn't they? But I just think that would be a mistake in itself if they he'll thought say, that was going to work. Yeah, well, if he has any brains, you'd think he would. Yeah, look, it's uh, not a healthy scenario, uh, really, for the health of the game, if you're talking about expanding into... into uh, relatively foreign territory. All right, let's move on. Team 16 in 2017, the Navy Blues. Now, opinions, fair to say, divided about the extent of the progress they made. Disappointing end of the year, only won one of their last 10. Uh, Big worry for me is lack of firepower up forward. Didn't top 100 points once during the season. Um, The other side of the coin, five Rising Star nominations, Petrovsky, Seaton, Marchbank, Kurnow, Silvani, Cunningham. Uh, one thing I do like about them is they're, they're difficult to play against, they're difficult to find space against, they're difficult to score against. So Brendan Bolton has instilled a decent defensive ethos, if nothing else. Reminds me a little bit of what Paul Roos did in his first couple of years at Melbourne. Um, but they really need to fix up that forward line, I reckon. Where do you say? I like I like the future for Carlton. Patrick Cripps didn't play for many of those last 10 games. He's their best footballer, and he was hampered a bit before then anyhow, so they welcome back Patrick Cripps. Mark Bank didn't play a lot in the second half of the year. He was a really good pickup from GWS. Jared Pickett had a good end to the season. I reckon he runs off the back line, might be a new type of Yarren. Casbolt and Cruz are re-signing a good signs. I think there's a belief within the club they need to continue to develop a forward line and change their game plan, much as Richmond did this year, from high possession, low risk, to less possession, more risk, and have faith in the spilt ball up in the forward line. To that end, Petrovsky-Seaton's important, but I don't mind how they played this year, and I don't think there were too many blowouts. Carlton really lost a lot of games in the last quarter. That could have been a far different-looking win-loss ratio with a bit of luck. They were competitive. Or maturity. They were competitive. I just want to ask you about Casbolt because the amount of flaky cops, he finished equal fourth in the league for average contested marks, but the conversion, I mean, like, at, at what point do you sort of lose faith in his capacity to get his kicking right? Uh, I thought he kicked okay this year. I don't think there were too many problems. He has a lot of kicks from a fair way out because he does the donkey work up the ground. So we're talking about kicks from the 40 to 55 metre range, which is, I think, where he prefers kicking it from anyhow. As Kurnow develops, and they're going to have to try and recruit or either trade for or draft another key forward. Harry Mackay, of course, notwithstanding, could be that man then Casbolt can do his work outside the 50-metre line up to the centre wing, do that bullocking work. He's a beautiful contested mark, and other teams would have snapped him up. I've got no problems with how Casbolt goes about his business. All right, let's move on to 15th, and that was North Melbourne. Now, I'm probably more bullish about this side than others are. I reckon they had, uh, given where they were coming from and what they stated their aims were, 
and the list turnover. I reckon they had a pretty fair year. They won six, uh, lost another five games by a total of 14 points. So pretty fine line between a bottom four finish and being in finals contention. They really... They they didn't hold back on trying the kids and throwing them in, and I, I thought there were some really good signs. The ones that impressed me the most, probably Ryan Clark, Declan Mountford, Jai Simkin. I thought we saw glimpses even of Vickers Willis, uh, Durden, Nielsen. I didn't mind him. I thought they recruited well, Marley Williams and Nathan Rovat. I thought really gave them something, both in defence and attack. And Ben Brown, I reckon, went to a, a new level as a, you know, couldn't have been far away from All-Australian selection as a, a key forward. So around the guts is perhaps the, the concern still. You know, Andrew Swallow, where's he at now? Um, ben Cunnington's still the foundation of that midfield. Is he um, brilliant enough to carry it, I wonder? Very solid year from him, though. Sixth in the AFL for contested ball, third for clearances. Doesn't get enough support, though. Even Jack Zebel, and I, I really like Jack Zebel as a skipper and as a, a leadership presence, but, you know, injuries, suspension issues, has the odd off game. Uh, they need more from him, I think. But for a young developing side that's really gone through generational change, I reckon it's mostly upward for them. I think they're in a huge amount of trouble. They did something unwise this what was that? season. They publicly stated their lofty ambitions, impossible ambitions to land Martin and Kelly. Well, they're 50% from getting nothing, which is normally how it ends up for North Melbourne, the same club that were in there trying to get Trelaw and Adams before they found other clubs. I can list you 10 or 12 players, if we had time, that North have put their hands up for that haven't gone there. What, da- what damage does that do, though? Oh, I think it, um, in terms of what the expectations of their supporters are, what it says to their current midfield group. It basically says to the team, especially the midfield group, you ain't it, Miss Thing. Well, they've got to find out plan B. And plan B is going to be very difficult. Their, their ruck stocks are in complete disarray. Goldstein, a shadow of the player he was. Doesn't mean he can't come good. Okay. All right, well, that's it. If, if North Melbourne have to back on Goldstein coming good and Majak Dahl coming good, you want to what wait ab- for that bus? What about Bruce? He's a big lump of a lad who, at the moment, doesn't have the tank to Jeez, be a first I, ruckman. I reckon, you, I reckon you're harsh here. They've got three decent their midfield, ruckmen. Their midfield's slow. Their midfield gets torn apart by quicker, you know, quicker teams to the contest. You know what? They can't just beat up on Melbourne every year in Brisbane. I mean, they beat Melbourne twice. Mm-hmm. Did they play Brisbane twice? Uh, anyway, they're half their mm-hmm. wins, Melbourne and last game against Brisbane. Uh, they beat Adelaide in a freak occurrence down in Hobart. They play better in Hobart than they do at Etihad. Their midfield is heading to be the worst in the comp. Oh, I reckon you're tough on them. Well, well, we'll call that our major disagreement on future prospects for these sides so far. Okay, next, Fremantle. Um, now, you want long-term pessimism. You've got it from me with the Dockers. And what a weird season. They, like, their first two games were appalling. All of a sudden, it was like the penny dropped for Ross, and he started putting the kids in. They started playing a more positive brand of footy. They won six of their next seven games uh, and a couple of really decent scalps in there, playing the younger guys, looking looking uh, to be more positive. And then all of a sudden, it was almost like Ross said, oh, gee, we're going to be a decent side now. We better go back to doing what we've done the last five years. Lost 11 out of 13 from that moment on. Three times lost by more than 100 points, which is first time that's ever happened to a Ross Lyon coach side. And by the end of it, just very, very little spirit. They look like a side lost, look like a side depending incredibly heavily on Nat Fife, uh, the Two Hills. What else? You know, they've showed some real character at different parts of the season. That win against Richmond at the MCG when Monday <clears throat> kicked the last goal. Yep. And then towards the end of the season, I know that they had those two big losses, but their game against GWS was an absolute ripper at Spotless. They mm. were in that game right to the very end. I've got to say, if you have a look at the team they fielded in the last game against Essendon, they did very well to be competitive. Not yeah, no, they're okay in that game. Well, how, how then do you account for the two games sandwiched in between those two performances? They played the two hottest teams in the competition, oh, and yeah. they're not 
Well, they did. They played Sydney in Sydney. Um, look, we saw a week later what Sydney did to Carlton. They were 16 points up halfway through the third quarter and almost were going to tip 100 again. I know, but you're getting blown away by over 100 points. It's with... all great. Well, look, they are a young team. They're an inexperienced team. Um, Nat Fife, I think we can look forward to some really good football again from Nat Fife. So he showed, after he signed his contract, that uh, I think he was named best eight out of nine games after that. So that's encouraging. Look, their big problem is... He, he, just quickly on Fife, he, he's, uh, his numbers are really good. He was fourth in the AFL for contested ball. Um, I think he was top 20 for contested marks. And clearances, so pretty solid year. Oh, very solid. Lockie Neal was probably a bit undersold in terms of his contribution, and Brad Hill, good on the outside, but there's not enough of that. No, oh, look, whatever they've got going on upfield isn't going to cover for the fact that they've got no forward line heading into next season. Um, Michael Walters notwithstanding, and uh, we look forward to his return. So you don't rate Cam McCarthy? Well, they don't. They dropped him mm. by the end. He couldn't make the team. Yeah. This is a team with no other key forwards. Tabiner. Well, they've tried Tabiner a few times. They have. He seems maybe to be Melbourne bound. I, re- I wouldn't be surprised if they trade him out. Uh, they dropped Cam McCarthy for Tabiner and Kirsten. Oh, look, they've got no key forwards. Their, their forward line is ready for another, not rebuild, but complete renewal. And they can't keep doing that every year. No, and I, I've still got my doubts about Ross Lyon being a coach who can develop young talent. So, yeah, right. uh, yeah it's going to be an interesting couple of years down there. I think, um, I, I think they're the early favourite for the spoon in markets, you'll find. Okay, yeah, no, I can understand that. All right, next, uh, the Magpies. Now, we both fell for them in uh, 2016. I fell. Uh, we both had them top four, I think. Yep. I fell for them again this year. I put them eighth. Um, if you had, if you had gone away or gone to another universe and come back for the last third of a season, you would have thought, oh yeah, they weren't too bad. No doubt, the last seven games saved Nathan Buckley's skin. Four wins and a draw, and the two losses were both very competitive against Port Adelaide and Geelong. But terrible list management going on down there. I mean, we've, you know, we've talked ad nauseum about Chris Mayne, Daniel Wells. Um, the fact that they were prepared to leave Darcy Moore unsupported as a key forward with, with nothing except uh, Jesse White, who was palpably short of the mark again, and Mason Cox, who's learning the game as a ruckman, let alone as a key forward. So I don't know what they were thinking Darcy Moore was capable of, but uh, you know, it wasn't particularly fair on him. More than that, though, given the amount of midfield talent they've got, and even in raw numbers, their midfield actually went all right. Like Trelaw was high for disposals. Taylor Adams got plenty of the ball. Side bottom, um, good on the outside. I think top 20 front contested ball. Uh, Pendlebury, you know, he's never less than serviceable. Darcy Moore showed signs. And Jeremy Howe was terrific for him in defence. But even with those, uh, the midfielders among that group breaking up those sort of numbers, they just didn't have anything like the impact they should have with that ball. And that's... Because, and I liked, I do like using this expression, they piss-farted around with the ball. I just played this chip, 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 hold possession across half-back. Took them ages to get it into the forward 50. Compromised the, uh, the quality of their shots for goal and their kicking was poor as well. And they just didn't get a, a, a good enough result given the amount of ball they won. And they were good at the contested ball and the amount of talent at their disposal. So, uh, you know, to me... If ever you wanted an indication that a coaching performance was short of the mark, those are the sort of things that suggest it to me. However, they've bitten the bullet, gone with Bucks again. Good luck to them, but I think uh, they've exhausted my patience with them. CFC, Confusion Football Club. I said it at the start of the year, and I stick to my comments. That team cannot be a realistic uh, assailant on the competition until they work out a hierarchy of players, a best 22, a best 26, a settled back six in the back line. So we end the season with enough good form to save Bucks' skin. But in the last game, Broomhead played, Ace played, Callum Brown played, Josh Dacos played, uh, a couple of Josh Thomas played. Now, are they in their best 22 now? I'm not saying Brown and Dacos won't develop, but where's 
Josh Smith, for example, ended 2016 as one of their really good stories. Now it's Sharon Berg. Will it be Sharon Berg at the end of next year? Phillips is another one. Tom Phillips in the team, but he sometimes uh, is the first dropped if their turnover rate is high because he gets it but doesn't use it as well as others. And that's been... Lyndon Dunn, Ben Reid forward. That's been the case with them, with those younger players particularly. That's been the case with them now for a good three years. So, yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. Well, how long does it take you to work out your best 22? Don't, there's no way you can show me a, a premiership team or a premiership contender that at least doesn't have a settled back six. Yeah. So where are they at, do you think? They're exactly where they were at the end of last year. Somewhere in that list is a best 22 that can make the eight. Yeah, so I wonder... How do you unlock it? Well, I'll tell you what you do first off. You you get them to play the sort of footy they played in that last game against Melbourne where they they stopped piss-farting around with the ball. They went direct and they moved the ball quickly. All right, but they can do that when, for example, uh, they've got a forward that is demanding the ball and maybe two key forwards. Yeah. But sometimes that's not the case. I mean, there were times in the last three weeks that Darcy Moore played off the half-back flank. Look... Okay, so they need a key forward, which makes you think they've got to go out and hit the the trade market for an experienced key forward. Now, the problem there's going to be that having been knocked around with their trades, and particularly this year with Maynard Wells, are they going to have the intestinal fortitude to bite the bullet and say, we're going to have another crack oh, at trades? Mate, they can ring me up. Because if they would have rung me up before they picked up Quentin Lynch, Jesse White or Chris Main they wouldn't have had the problem. Yeah. By the way, they could ring you up. They could ring whoever listens to this podcast up. They could ring Blind Freddy up. And they would have all told them that Quentin Lynch was done. Chris Main has been in steady decline for four years. And Jesse White is a one-in-four type footballer. So, Okay, so answer the question, though. Do they bite the bullet and go out and look for a, an, a, an experienced key forward? Sure, and if it goes wrong, blame Gabby Allen. <laughs> All right, next cab off the rank 12th, and it's the Hawks. And, uh, well, it's I reckon if you said at the start of the season, we'll be talking about Hawthorne finishing 12th in glowing terms, you would have thought, what are you, mad? But given where they were after about seven or eight games, it ended up being a pretty reasonable season, didn't it? Um, look, you know, not no better than mid-table in any major statistical category. Did have... I reckon far and away the recruit of the year in terms of other club trade-ins in Tom Mitchell. What an unbelievable season. First in the comp for disposals, fifth for contested balls, second for uncontested ball, top 20 for clearances, top 20 for tackles, all Australian selection. Fantastic pickup. Jager O'Meara, they got burnt with a bit in terms of injury, but last couple of games, and admittedly it was only a couple of games, but he did start to show a bit of the sort of class we know he has. So Well, he played. Yeah. And it's a big if, but if he stays fit, he will obviously add a huge amount to them. But the real positive for me was just the way they, they were forced, really, through injuries to senior players to really push through some of those younger guys. And they got good returns from them. Burton, obviously, the best example off halfback. But I thought Daniel Howe showed a bit. I like Blake Hardwick. James Sicily's move to defence now looks inspired. Uh, even J- uh, Jack Gunston going back, I thought they got good value out of that. You get next year Rioli, Frawley, Stratton back. And Birchall. Uh, and Birchall. I forgot about Birchall. So all of a sudden you're looking at the Hawks and, well, gee, maybe they've already rebuilt and maybe they're back in finals contention. I reckon they start next year in the best six teams in the comp. Maybe even the best four teams in the comp. So who do you reckon they're better than in the eight now? So th- this is at the start of next year. Yeah, with factoring in. With those guys back. With those guys in. And I really like the way Ruffhead ended the season. Yeah. We know he started the season in a very different frame of mind than most league footballers. So I think he starts next season back as a key forward with real grunt. McAvoy is resurrected. I think they can start the season, in my estimations, uh, as a team better than potentially Geelong, equal to a GWS and Richmond. Um, certainly up there with the likes of Essendon and I'm talking about teams in the eight, 
better than the West Coast Eagles. Mm-hmm. I think no, there's I'd some scope with Essendon as well. I just think they're clearly in the best eight teams at the start of next year. Yeah, well, no, the sign's definitely looking up. And uh, in terms of rebuilding, it's been, uh, it's, it's been on fast forward, that one. All right, 11th, your Saints. Um, I'll let you do the bulk of the talking here just for what it's worth. My input... Forward line was the shadow of last year. Heard a great stat during the week. Might have even been on your show, actually. But it was they didn't win a single game when any one of Rewalt, Bruce, or Membry didn't play in the side. Correct. When all three of them played, they ended up three from the eight from 11. Yeah. And without them, uh, zero. Yeah. So forward line disappointing. Um, Defence, I thought, held up okay. Carlisle had a, a really good year. I thought Brown was, was pretty solid as well. Midfield, I found really disappointing. I looked at that list of names supplemented by Stevenson Steele, and I thought, gee, I reckon they've got enough now. Well, it turned out not to be enough. Didn't think they worked nearly hard enough defensively, that whole midfield group. Um, And I think that there's too many players among them who still look like small forwards who can have a spell through the midfield rather than the other way around. Yep, yeah. That small forward conundrum, in the end... Jade Gresham's a really good footballer. Yeah. Uh, he plays in the forward line and can play up high. He's, i tell you what, there were a number of weeks without his goal kicking and his goal creating. It would have been even worse. The disappointment for St Kilda at 11 and 11, they're probably only one or two games either side at the most of where people thought they would be. Uh, next year, they look to go forward on the back of McCartan playing a key role. Now, there's two ifs there. The first if is whether or not, with his concussion issues, he can play 22 games of football. And then the second problem is, is he any good at football? (laughs) We need to wait to see. David Armitage was a big loss. Yeah, he was. He's a very experienced midfielder and got a very interesting stat from Matt Finnis on Friday about Armitage. When he came back, it was only a couple of games for Sandringham and he did his ankle again. He had been working on something quite interesting. It was top speed because they noted that at around 27, 28 k's an hour, his top speed was not that of the elite midfielders. He upped it to 30 to 31 k's. So they want him to be an explosion player and that'll be his role next year. For St Kilda, they're not going to recruit any stars and without stars, I think that they are a team that might be cast in that middle of the ladder for quite a while. All right, number 10, and you'd have to say just, you know, statistically the biggest disappointment of the year, the reigning Premier, Western Bulldogs. Second team in almost 20 years to win a flag and then miss the following year's finals. For me, uh, a lot of, you know, look, I went through the rankings. There's a lot of issues there in terms of not as good contested ball. Handball wasn't as effective. Their conversion was terrible, worst in the league. But all that is overshadowed for me by one word, hunger. They lacked it. They just lacked the same level of intensity that they had last year. Proof of the pudding there was that of their ten best, uh, sorry, top ten in the best and fairest, only one player, Caleb Daniel, improved his numbers this year. The only other improvers you could argue on the entire list, just about, were Bailey Dale and Toby McLean. On oh, the other McLean, McRae had a whether or not McRae, yeah, yeah, he had a good year. I mean, I, I yeah, don't solid. know if he improved, but I think he's found a good level that he plays at. Um, I think they got really hurt in the ruck by Jordan Roughhead's injury because I, I, I think he can be a really good permanent number one ruckman given a bit of durability. They had a decent replacement, but he kept on overlooking him. Campbell. And Tom Campbell reminds me a lot of Jared Witts. He's a mm. good, serviceable ruckman who, when he played, he only played in five games yeah, uh, or six games. He wasn't beaten. The other structural issues, very undersized defence, and I think they underestimated the impact of losing Joel Hamley. Um, So why did they play Fletcher Roberts so often in the VFL? Well, I don't know. I don't know. And then they lost Marcus Adams, and and his injury hurt them more than I think people thought it might. And then up the other end, we looked at their recruiting in terms of the forward line, thought, well, they've got to kick more goals um, because they won a flag only the 12th highest scoring team. But Cloak got injured. But it was a stupid pick-up. Well, well, I want to give him another year, but it didn't go well for him physically or psychologically. And then Tom Boyd. Uh, also, I mean, physically and psychologically. Well, exactly. So, I mean, I guess you could argue that's a worry in itself. But again, their their personnel issues, structural issues, uh, game style issues, for me, just weren't as hungry as the year they won the flag. Uh, everything 
you said I concur with. I want to add another element to it. And I believe Luke Beveridge's coaching style that took them to the Premiership in 2016, which had all players on notice that uh, there's a squad of 35 that could fill the best 22 positions and there's no name sacred in terms of being dropped, etc., etc. Whilst that was a stroke of genius in 2016, I really believe it ended up being disruptive in 2017. And what can you put that down to? Well, maybe when you drop a big-name player and there's a real feeling amongst the group that you're on course for something pretty special. And that's how they played all year. If you get ladder positions, they had a great self-belief that being dropped was sort of the kick up the bum that some players needed to go back and try even harder and and perform even better. Well, it might have worked in 2016 when you're on the road to glory, but in 2017, you're actually dropping premiership players. Mm. So what's a bigger dent to the ego, you think? Well, it's like, I've been on this merry-go-round before, mate. Yeah. I'm a premiership player now. Yeah. Are we playing this game again? I understand, you know, the group all bought in last year, but I ain't buying in this year. Well, it's a recurring theme, I think. If you look at Liberatore, he just didn't buy into that sort of motivation. You look through history at sides that achieved, were seen to achieve a premiership ahead of their time. Most of them, I think, have struggled subsequently. All right, number nine, and you can still hear the gnashing of teeth down at Demon Land, but uh, Melbourne. In the end, uh, I, I said hunger for the Bulldogs. The word I think of with Melbourne is immaturity because they certainly had enough talent to make it had to win the last game against Collingwood, and they blew it in that first quarter. But also, losses to Fremantle, North Melbourne twice, lost to Hawthorne when the Hawks were going terribly. Uh, Still not quite tough enough inside, I reckon, and it's not for want of recruiting the right sort of players. And you'll look at that, you'll think, hang on, you've got Oliver, you've got Viney, but Viney's injuries at the end of the year really hurt them at an untimely stage. Losing Jesse Hogan for a couple of different reasons up forward, I think, unsettled them and, and uh, cut cut short their scoring um, potency. And, yeah, look, I think good on the outside, uh, not that great on the inside and not necessarily that great when, when the, the, hard, the hard fight had to be fought. So, for me, that's more a maturity issue than anything else. I think, overall, they're on course. Have to make the finals next year, though, to vindicate it. Yeah, you know, you know, you talked about those key losses and ladder-wise they played a huge role. But heading into that last game at Collingwood, well, I'll, I'll use this analogy. If the grey clouds are rolling in on your wedding day and it's an outdoor affair, but they've been rolling in for the last couple of days, then don't complain when it pours and ruins the party because their game against Brisbane leading into this last game against Collingwood, their game against St Kilda... They were not playing good football and mm. they were getting through by the skin of their teeth against lesser opposition. So I was not surprised to see them fail against Collingwood and a lot of Melbourne supporters actually probably took the philosophical attitude if that's how we're going to play, I don't want to see us in the finals. That's not what they've been waiting 11 years for, limping into the finals. Jesse Hogan had a season, it's hard to comment on somebody who's had cancer, lost a family member, been injured, but, and I'm not putting those things aside, they're all very important. Uh, I don't believe he's part of a cohesive Melbourne going forward. Mm, yeah, I reckon it's a bit harsh. Again, I, I'd like to see him settle down. I've, and... I'm saying on, on intel that I have, on yeah. my understanding, he's not the lifeblood of that team. Well, time will tell. I'll I'll, I'll say this, last word. I had, the start of the year, everyone was sort of bracketing St Kilda and Melbourne. I thought St Kilda would be the more solid of the two. I thought Melbourne's best might be more brilliant, but I thought St Kilda might be more solid. I think I had half of that right. Um, Melbourne's best was more brilliant. Yes. But but ultimately, neither of them were really good enough, were they? I don't think either of them can sort of say we were harshly done by. All right, well, there's the sides in mothballs for 2017. Hopefully, we've given you a little bit of hope for 2018. But most of all, as usual, Finey, we tell it like it is. On Footyology, talking top 22s. Rightio, All-Australian team announced last week, finally, and uh, different in personnel by five to our final Talking Top 22s 
All-Australian team. Um, a few people contacted me during the week and said they thought we had the better team. Do you think we had the better team? Yeah, I'm probably willing to accept one Well, first of all, hang mistake. on. Just before you run through it, let's just give the ins and outs. So... Uh, in our team and not in the official All-Australian team, we had Jeremy Howe in a back pocket, Toby Green in a half-forward flank, and then three of the interchange players, Rory Sloan, Luke Parker, Clayton Oliver, who for some incredible reason wasn't even in the 40-man squad um, of the official version. Now, their five instead of those, they had Michael Hibbard, who we did have in until the last couple of weeks, yep. Zach Merritt, Dane Zorko, who we did have at one stage, and on the interchange bench, Joel Selwood, who we did have until the last couple of weeks, and Dylan Shield. So, okay, why do you think ours is superior? Well, because we picked it. Yeah, Dylan Shield's a complete mystery to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, uh, I was surprised by that. Yeah, you know, Dylan Shield is part of a very strong midfield, and he's a very good player. But I'm just shocked that he's in that team. We had a close look at him, but I think you. Got a bit of a soft spot for oh, I love Michael him. Hibbert. I love him, and uh, I think we only tipped him out in last the week. second last round. Yeah, second last week, yeah. and, and we had a close look at him, and Jeremy Howe just continued to outperform him. Look, yeah, the, I think in the end he gave way for Yo. In the end, we yeah. brought Yo back. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Even though in there in the two teams it's Howe and Hibbard, yeah, it is Yo, and Yo was named in both sides. I'm willing to concede. Maybe Luke Parker's spot for Zach Merritt. Yeah. And communicate. Put Merritt in for Parker. Would you reckon, have I done my reverse bias thing? I'm so worried. Happens a lot. Happens a lot. You know, we both get criticised. Being too harsh on our own. Yeah, we don't hide our support under a bushel, and nor should we. I'd prefer to know people's allegiances in the media rather than have them so Tishlessly inculcated during calls and in articles. So we people know Essendon St Kilda and maybe we are sometimes um, sort of self self checking on these matters. But and I'm happy to put a, a revised version, a final version on the website. Are you happy to do that? Um let's do it under advice. Well for me But on what grounds are we changing it? Where I'm not I'm not gonna take my cues from the all Australian selectors. I think Merritt deserves to be in that 22. All right, well, at whose expense? Luke Parker. Okay. But they haven't either. Neither of them have played a game to actually... Uh, so well, on what grounds are we saying that? We on, were wrong? I don't re- like saying we were wrong. On review, yeah. due consideration and under pressure from my nephew. No, um, <laughs> no, I think I think it was an oversight. I do. Yeah, pa- look, Parker Parker was the most contentious in our team. Just quickly, how, how in God's name could they have left Oliver out of a 40-man squad? I don't know. There's always one lot that every year, and that was definitely, I think it was Merritt last year actually wasn't in the 40-man squad. But Oliver, um, yeah, I've got his numbers here. Oliver was eighth in the AFL for disposal, second for contested possession, equal eighth for clearances, fourth for tackles. Well, can I just point something out? Yes. From the musical Oliver? Oliver, Oliver, never before as a boy handballed more. Oliver. <laughs> yes, so? Well, it's an integral part of a midfielder's armoury. I think it's great. I th- I'm saying that as a positive. More? You want to handball more? <laughs> more yeah. All right, last one on this. Um, Are you happy to put Merritt into that? Yeah, I, I think well, it should be. Yeah, yeah okay. All right, so Merritt goes in for Parker. We'll whack that up on footyology.com.au. If you've got any final thoughts on our team versus the – actually, I'll put the official All-Australian team up as well. Compare and tell us which you prefer. And then uh, if you prefer ours, we'll lobby to actually replace – a couple of those selectors. Uh, there's a lot of them. There's about eleven now. So yep. plenty of uh, plenty of opinions on on that team. Just quickly, I couldn't. I did mention this on Twitter, and Richo cut up a little bit rough about it. But I couldn't understand. And there was plenty of debate about whether Joel Selwood should be in the twenty-two. But that's the um, that's irrelevant. Uh, that's irrelevant. If Selwood is in the twenty-two, how can he not be captain? Because obviously they felt he just snuck in. So well, that's we, crap, though, isn't it? Correct. You, you don't just sneak in. Hey, we haven't named our captain because we don't have Selwood. But hang on, just a final point on this. Yeah. They make a big deal of saying this is a twenty-two pick to play a game. Now that means that the interchange bench is just as big a part of the team as the eighteen named to start on the ground. Yep. Yep. And that means that if the captain is sitting on the bench, 
He is no less a part of a 22 than someone named in the 18. You have arguably the best captain in the AFL sitting in your 22. Not making him captain, I think, just looks stupid. Fair enough. Well, it's, it makes me angry. No, I, I was surprised at the choice of okay, captain. Okay, we, we need a captain, and yeah. we haven't got Selwood. So who have we got? Sloan. Uh, who else have we got? He's not a captain, but... No, he, no, but who, who else have we got who's potentially captain material? I would like to give the captaincy to... I reckon it's got to be uh, it's got to be Sloan or Dangerfield, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd give it to Dangerfield and... Sloan, his vice? No, I want to make Toby Green my vice captain. No, no, you're not being silly. We've taken this who? seriously. You're not going to depart into, into farce now. Danger field. He would captain. not be the first. Let me tell you, he would not be the first bad boy to be a vice captain. Vice captain. You think it's Shane Warne? It. I'm, th- there's a strong history in sport of offering the, you know, the carrot and stick type. Um, how do we improve him? Give him the carrot, not the <clears> stick. Yeah, but I mean, you, you've got, if you're going to have a vice captain, what right. about Lance my, Franklin? What about no, uh, my vice captain in that team? Would be well, Rance. No, because he was made captain of the other one, Josh Kelly. They reckon he's got great leadership potential. Seriously, yeah, maybe in leadership group. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll we'll finalise. <laughs> what when you have a look at it on footyology.com.au, you will have a captain and a vice captain, but uh, it's not going to be Alex Rance captain. I can I can tell you that now, Sonny Jim. Time for us to move on. On footyology. Media Watch. Media Watch time, and uh, last week, of course, we we gave a bit of a eulogy to our dear departed colleague Drew Morford. But back onto the bread and butter stuff this week. Finally, a couple of things that I've been thinking about, and one makes me a bit sad to be honest. And uh, you know, there's been a lot written about and spoken about the demise of newspapers. In terms of newspaper coverage of footy, I think one area which has really declined sharply, even in the last two or three years, is the concept of the player or recently retired player columnist. Um, what do I mean by that? By that, What I mean is that I think that used to be an integral part of newspapers' uh, football coverage. And these days I look at those equivalent columns and I think that they're sometimes bordering on irrelevant and often seem to be written without much thought or care or at times even interest because a lot of the guys writing those columns now have multi-media gigs. They have a TV gig, they have a radio gig, they find them easier, they probably pay more and the newspaper stuff looks like it's a bit of an afterthought. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I find what past players offer to the game in terms of commentary is increasingly irrelevant, not because... But when you say commentary, I'm talking strictly about newspapers in this case. The comment on the game has become irrelevant because of their inability to shake the tag of being part of a greater society. That is footballers, footballers past and present. Yeah. And the us versus them has them on one side of the fence both current players and past players, they lose their team colours, but they always seem to go into bat for the player in the current situation. And then on the other side of the fence is the match review panel, the umpires, the rules committee, and it's a flagrant sort of... um, They're soft targets. Yeah, they're soft targets. It's another um, jab at authority. In fact, there was a good article in the Sunday Age today about the lot of the local football umpire. I saw it was in the VAFA, and I know that dynamic all too well. So these articles become so predictable for so many of the writers. Take the current Dustin Martin situation. By the end, if you read most of the commentary on it from past players, he could do no wrong whichever way he went. Yeah, Loyalty was being lauded as was the right for a footballer to go out there and maximise his earning potential. Uh, get off the fence. You know, if, yeah. if you're giving us an insight, tell us what it means to a football club one way or the other. I don't need to be told that Dustin Martin is uh, done is doing the right thing no matter what he does over and over again. 
Yeah, now look, people. I can see people will be saying, well, who are you actually talking about here? I'll give you a couple of examples. Still close to the best um, insider column written in a newspaper in my lifetime is those columns that Brent Croswell was doing for The Age in the early 1980s. And he was still playing at the time. And if uh, you're too young to remember them, they're worth digging out. He wrote about things like, he wrote a very memorable one about uh, sex the night before a game. He wrote another very memorable one about Vinnie Cotoggio playing in the 1973 grand final and about his third game and how he got sort of thrown to the wolves by Carlton and his sort of guilt about that. Um, he wrote a fantastic one about playing chess with Ron Barassi. But he was a really good writer, Brent, and obviously an intelligent guy. But you could see the amount of thought that went into uh, the flow of, of what he wrote and how he was going to make it a, an engaging piece of writing. Um, so for me, that's still the best. In, in more recent times, I still think there's been, there's been plenty. Look, Gary Lyon... Um, only, I reckon, about four or five years ago, won the AFL Media Columnist of the Year Award. He was doing a big Saturday morning column, and it was often a very forensic look at how certain sides played or what their problems were. He did a fantastic one about Hawthorne, I think, when Hawthorne were having one of those rare sort of dips in form and about how Clarkson was going about turning it around. And, you know, he'd clearly spoken to a lot of people and done a, a, put a heap of work into it. Uh, Matthew Lloyd, I think his stuff in the Sunday Age until this year has been uh, pretty compelling and he's worked really hard at it. But there's too many that just look like they're doing it by the numbers, to be honest. And who are some of them? Chris Judd's columns have disappointed me a bit this year. Uh, Wayne Carey's are a bit up and down. I think sometimes the Ducks stuff's good. Other times it sort of reads like he was trying to get it done in a hurry. Um, Another reason, I think, for the decreasing relevance of those sorts of columns is that, and this is another consequence of these guys being in all forms of electronic media, the newspapers now are quoting these guys ad nauseum from those other commitments. So, you know, you pick up a newspaper on a Tuesday or look on a newspaper website on a Tuesday, it's full of quotes from people on the Monday night footy shows. Well, it certainly diluted Matthew Lloyd's punch because there is a lot of punch in his writing, but the punch gets... Um, sort of parried away a little bit when you've heard it quoted in other articles and heard it three or four times. Even on 1116 SEN, they'll play audio. Yep. He's got plenty to say, but by the time it's written, it doesn't have the same impact. Yeah, which is it's sort of another hobby horse of mine, this, but I've been saying for years, well, when I was involved with newspapers, I'd say, why do we report, dutifully report what everyone says on TV so it looks like we think TV is more important than us. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's sort of like, point. well, newspapers are their own worst enemies. It's you know, and forget sport. What about the amount of times you look on the homepage of either Herald Sun or The Age now, and it's full of Game of Thrones recaps, MasterChef recaps. Yep. It looks like we worship at the altar of TV. So no, if you're point. basically saying to people, well, we're secondary to them, um, you're not sort of helping push your own product much. So. I think it's sad because I think, you know, when players could, you know, when there was less sort of football in the media about and they had, um, you know, there was less opportunity to hear their thoughts on these things and the insider view was a, a rarer thing to be give, uh, to be privy to, I thought a lot of those things were compelling reading. But now, like, to be perfectly brutally honest, like a lot of stuff in newspapers, I look at them now and I think, oh, yeah, well, I can, you know, um, my life's not going to be a lot poorer if I don't read that. Uh, the best example is ask yourself this question, and that is if Matthew Lloyd, with his insight and inside information in football, has a breaking piece of either information or deep analysis that he himself knows is proprietary to himself and well worth trumpeting, Mm. Where will he put it first? Where oh. will you first hear about it? Will it be on TV? Will it be on radio? Or will you read about it first? What do you reckon? Exactly. You know one thing. In that trifecta, third newspaper. Yeah, yeah. And and, and it's sad because I think that the written word, you know, and we've, we've, we've done all three, um, and, and each is satisfying in its own way, but... There is a deeper sort of satisfaction, or no, not just satisfaction, there's a deeper sort of analysis, I think, that you can pursue 
via the written word than you can necessarily through what you say on TV or radio. Well, what you say on TV or radio immediately becomes obsolete. Mm. These podcasts are a little bit different, and maybe that dynamic... Hopefully. Well, I'm saying maybe that dynamic changes, but it was always newspapers that was held to the highest standard because there was an opportunity to proof one's work, to think about it before either going to press or pressing send on your computer. There was a chance for recap analysis and editing and self-editing, which made it held to a higher standard. Unfortunately, now, that higher standard makes way for really secondary or tertiary importance, and that's a pity. All right. Now, if you've got any thoughts on that, uh, drop us a line on the uh, Footyology website, Footyology, uh, footyology.com.au. Uh, there's plenty of room there for your feedback. I'd be interested to hear what you think. But it sort of leads us on to another topic I wanted to bring up in this segment this week, Finally, and it's that old chestnut about you haven't played at the highest level. Now, um, some of us are known to be quite sensitive about this, and I guess those of us who tend to gravitate more towards analysis of games and tactics and players and coaches, and if we haven't got an elite AFL playing background, um, we feel we have to sort of overcompensate in terms of our knowledge and our research, and uh, and still often that's seen not seen as being enough. I think that's changed to a degree. I think the footy public is more accepting of that that you you can be a credible voice on those things if it's pretty obvious you know your stuff and you've done your homework. Uh, by the same token, I I suspect or maybe I just hope that the punters are also a bit more cluey now about guys that come out of playing and just expect to parlay that into being seen as a credible voices of analysis without putting in the requisite work. I I defer to a a famous quote, and it's not in the field of journalism, but it does speak to experience not being required to be excellent in the field, and it's about the famous British gynaecological surgeon, Mr Field Dunn, who apparently... Never had a baby of his own, (laughs) but he delivered thousands. So I think it's an argument that is, if put up ever, and disappointingly, it is occasionally thrown back at journalists who've not played AFL football by coaches. That's when I find it disappointing. When members of the public do it, it's sort of the... Water off a duck's back. Yeah, because it is, in terms of an argument, in terms of... Uh, a debate, that's the sort of thing that gets you... It's really no argument at all. Yeah. Coaches should know better, shouldn't they? Yeah, except you know what I'd say there? I'd reckon once upon a time I think that was probably true. My feeling on on this now is that the current cop of coaches I think are much better at accepting that than some retired players are. I've found in the last 10 years that the people who I've perceived have more that attitude, have tended to be former players more so than coaches. Do you ever do you ever um, check some of your own work at the baggage counter, as it were? You know, you leave it behind based on the fact that you didn't play the game? What do you mean, leave behind? Well, I mean, I, I need to... Be, I, I'm sometimes a little bit careful. I, I understand... So there are things I think, but I'm loath to put out there publicly. Yeah. Um, I don't. Th- I don't think it's for us really to be talking about backing back into packs. Or oh yeah, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And there are. There I, are th- I mean, I only talk about that in a positive sense. And yeah, I marvel. Yeah. I marvel at the courage. Yeah, no, but, uh, no. But I, I wouldn't question no, a player's I agree with that. courage. Or I agree with that. And and they are the things that you can only really have a credible opinion on if you have played correct, at that level. Correct. But I don't think that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking no, about no. sort of analysis of tactics and oh, of. of of coaching trends. Um, but I'm just pointing out that we do have... and all. Yeah, we, we don't think anything's off limits. There should be a filter. Yeah, okay. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. See, one, one... I think some of these retired players who do think if you haven't played, you can't have a view, you haven't played at the elite level, they often get themselves into trouble because they the some of those same people at the same time will insist that, oh, the game has changed so much in the, in the last X years. Well, okay, if you retired 10 years ago, how are you any more credible a voice on it than the rest of us? Yeah. Well, look, 
I think the number is small, but maybe for us, it, it really cuts to the quick, so it's a loud, shrill voice. For every player that has not even verbalised those sentiments, but even suggested, you know, suggested them through... Sniggered them. Yeah. I would say for every one detractor, there are three or four ex-players that I'm so impressed uh, speak to me, speak to you about honing their craft Mm. as off-field reporters of the game, showing great respect, deferring to our experience in covering the game, both on radio, in a written sense, and really want to learn from us. And the prime example of that was Nathan Buckley in the year he had between playing and coaching. came came and worked in uh, various forms of media, including at 1116 SEN. And I was doing a show one day, and he just rocked up 10 minutes before the start of the evening program at 7 o'clock with a notepad and pen and uh, said whether he minded, whether I minded that he sit and take some notes. Yeah. Well, you could have, you know, floored me, but I didn't act like the dumbstruck teeny bopper that I really felt. <laughs> and he asked some really pertinent questions and just was very keen to hone his skill in that field, which yeah. always gave me great faith in his ability to learn on the job as a coach. Yeah. Which still does in a matter as a matter of fact. But I think for every um Matthew Lloyd, I put Lloydies in that category. Absolutely as well. yeah. in that category. Yeah. He worked on every aspect of his off field persona, including knowing that when he came out of the game, even though he had a lot of great things to say, the voice that he said them with sounded a little dull, a little monotone. Mm. And he went and got the sort of speech help that has turned him into a beautiful public speaker and uh, the same level of professionalism that they say made him a great goal kicker. Hundreds of shots of goal after training has been put to good use in media. Well, speaking of which, too, I mean, the knowledge, it's more, it's a lot more than half the battle, but it's one thing to have the knowledge. You have to be able to articulate it. Correct. And this, I'll touch on this now. In fact, this is a whole separate topic I'd like to talk about, but... Particularly when it comes to special comments, the job of the special comments guy has to be, or should be, to simplify what's going on for the punter at home. And far too often, I reckon, guys doing that job are actually doing the reverse. It's like they're trying to impress their mates with their mastery of the latest fashionable footy jargon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I got in a lot of trouble um, in recent times. suggesting that a recently departed soccer commentator made the game more complicated, not less complicated, for the listener. And for that, I don't think he, I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think you take credit for over-intellectualising a sport that people are expecting you to simplify. I think we touched on it a couple of weeks ago, but just back to footballers who are honing their craft with deference to journalists rather than simply looking at journalists as, you know, sort of um, bottom feeders who never played the game. Nick Del Santo has got a long time in the media because he's keen to learn from Mm. media people better ways to express his deep understanding of the game. And he's already very good at it, and he continues to improve that skill. And I think at a more fundamental level too, it's it's about um, it's it's about sort of I don't know, it's just keeping your feet on the ground, isn't it? You know, like I mean, you, and I think most former players are pretty good like this. But you know, you were good at football. You weren't a you weren't a brain surgeon. You yeah. know, you didn't you didn't pioneer open heart surgery. You were good at football. So you know, you, and most know that. Yeah. Look, the one thing I would accept is that some footballers come out of the game tainting all journalists with the same brush, having had bad experience from foot-in-the-door type newsbreakers. Yeah, and which they, is one of a number of different genres, isn't it? Correct. They need to, and they need to quickly learn a distinction between somebody who has um, sticky-beaked into their private life, which I find totally beyond the pale, mm. and somebody who reports on the game. Sure, yeah. both guys might never have played football, but are very different creatures or gals. Couldn't agree more. Well, interesting discussion. Um, if you've got any specific sort of topics in this uh, fascinating field you'd like us to broach, uh, just drop us a line at footyology.com.au and uh, we'll see what we can do. But time for us to move on. On Footyology, Roco and Finney's Rant Off. 
Okay, rant time. I'm a little bit worried we're not fired up enough because there's been no footy. Are you fired up enough, Finey? I am fired up, mate. Well, I'm not, so get into me. One, two, get stuck in you! What's happening to football scheduling, Finey? We've been banging on for years now about the death of traditional time slots. Now we can't even have a final in September at either end of the month. We haven't had a grand final in September either of the last two seasons. Poor Mike Brady's lost thousands of dollars in royalty checks as a result. We finally get that one day in September back this year, and they take it off us at the other end. Here we are, the first weekend of spring, the sun out, getting warmer, smell of cut grass in the air. Finals? Nope, not on your life. Not an AFL game in sight. Everywhere I went at the weekend, there were people wandering around looking lost. No, I don't want to do the gardening. Go to an art exhibition or pretend I know one end of an electric glue gun from the other and go to bloody Bunnings Warehouse. I want to go to finals. Now! And that's just the fans. What about the players? Bugger the sides that worked all year to finish top four and get a decent advantage. I will just even things up by giving the bottom half of the eight a spell as well as penalising two teams for winning their qualifying finals. Prepare for a preliminary final having played one game in 27 days? Yeah, no problem. Well, after we teach those guys who barely played for a month how to kick a footy again, if your primary motivation is giving everyone in the final eight the same sort of chance, why not scrap the season altogether, have rigged storylines, teams fighting in cage matches and call it World Football Federation or something? So, it'll all be back to normal this week though, right? No, of course not. Thursday night finals, Saturday at 4.20pm. I'm telling you, Finey, the only reason we didn't end up with a Tuesday morning high tea final is that it clashed with Gil McLaughlin's polo game. Oh, and it might have clashed with the rerun of MasterChef on Channel 7 because that's what it's all about, obviously. Bloody live crowds, they're a nuisance. We need fan-free finals to make this September tick over more smoothly. And with the sort of prices club members having to fork out via legalised scalping just to see their teams play, we might get them sooner than you think. Now, look, it was brilliant, suitably angry, with only one, yeah. with only one mistake. What? Master Chef's on Channel 10. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well. You know what? what? It shows he didn't watch it, which is another plus. Yeah, well, I, I pride myself on not watching any reality TV. All right, let's keep the momentum going. I'm going to count you in straight away. Three, two, one, rant! Fast forward next year. There's a minute to go in the Legends game. Scores are level. No, they're not. One team's ahead by a goal and an opportunity to either level it up or win after the siren. Doesn't matter if the siren takes three or four minutes to blow. We'll just wait. We can run a little bit over. Who cares? It's all about the theatre. What theatre is it? Look, the EJ Whitten Legends game has degenerated into Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals. It is so American, so obvious, such a performance of individual bits of bobs and brilliance and I can do this and I can do that, take out the contest. Absolutely cut from the American playbook of an all-star game. But why? People might not realise this, but back in the early days, the E.J. Witten Legends game was played in semi-darkness at grounds like Princess Park or Western Oval. Now, there were actually some grudges settled out on the field, and it was bloody interesting. I can tell you that a certain dual Brownlow medalist who played for three clubs did not like playing and would not play in the Legends game because he was told the first time he'd put his head over the ball, a couple of blokes were going to kick it clear off his shoulders. Now, this is what Aussie Legends games should be all about. I don't give a stuff about the TV numbers. They say that they're good, so they're going to keep on with this fake competition. Well, you know what? The most popular restaurant in most cities is McDonald's. Doesn't mean it serves the best food. Get back to what a true Aussie Legends game could be all about. Old players settling scores in semi-darkness at shitty football grounds. Then I'll be watching. You bet I would. (laughs) Very good. Yeah, all the integrity's gone out of novelty football games, hasn't it? You know what? It is. It really really should be shown either with the cartoons at 7.30 in the morning or just before... The evening news, because it's become a kid's show. Well, we, we both called it on, on Friday night for 11, 16. Part of the theatre. And uh, we, we did sort of more or less imply the fix was in uh, several seconds before the final siren there was one eventually hi- rang. There was one highlight. What was that? Me Actually seeing the extraterrestrial creature that had eaten Paul Hazelby liner. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, it's fair to, fair to say he's added a bit of condition since his playing days. And I was sure it was Stuart Dew. 
Okay, that's it for episode seven of the Footyology podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. Head to footyology.com.au for all the latest news and views on our great game. Finals week one coming up, finally. Always a great weekend, isn't it? As you said, it starts on Thursday, ends on Saturday, so it's not quite a week. It's a great half a week. Yeah, it's a great half a week, no week, no Sunday, but I'm looking forward to it. We'll have a comprehensive review of all those four first finals this time next week. But as you know, finally, we always finish off with a very obscure musical connection to football, and I didn't have to hunt too high and low this week. I thought, you know what? They're really pulling one over, pulling the wool over our eyes with this week off. I think we've been dudded. We've been fooled. What does that make you think of, musically speaking? Um, tell me. One of the great rock bands of our time, The Who, off the seminal Who's Next album, and the classic FM radio staple, Won't Get Fooled Again, Finey. And I quote, I'll tip my hat to the new constitution, take a bow for the new revolution, smile and grin at the change all around, pick up my guitar and play, just like yesterday, then I'll get on my knees and pray, we don't get fooled again. We'll see you next week. 